Well, thank you, Christine, for your testimony. It was um, Bob shared. It was encouraging to spend time with you and fellowship and prayer yesterday morning and with all the other new members at Cornerstone as well. Well, if you are in any ways involved with our, our society and culture, you realize um, an important movie, I guess, in the eyes of the world and the church was released this past Wednesday, The Passion of Christ. It seems to me there's a lot of heat, but not a lot of light um, concerning um, Christ and even this movie. Uh, I mean, first of all, the passion of Christ, it, it's not talking about the zeal of Christ or his intensity. Um, in Acts chapter 1, 3, the Bible says, after his sufferings, Christ appeared to his disciples. King James Version um, translates that word passion. After his passion, Christ revealed himself to many. So, the last week of Christ's life is often termed as the Passion Week, the week of suffering. And so that's what that title refers to. Um, we wrestled as a church, a church leadership um, how to approach this movie, whether we, sh- we should uh, speak uh, on it at all. Um, I sent a short email to some of the leaders just sharing my, my thoughts and my concerns about the movie. And I thought at this time... Um, before we get into the Word, just share a few thoughts you know, with you about the movie. I received an email last week, maybe a two-page paper, um, highlighting the evil of the movie and how Christians ought not see it. This pastor exhorted uh, his uh, members and exhorted me that it is a violation of the second commandment in Exodus 20 not to make and grave an image, and that's idolatry. And therefore, seeing a picture of Christ is wrong. Well, I would beg to differ with the pastor, a man I respect. Um, In Exodus 20, what is prohibited is using graven images for the purpose of worship, not graven images of itself, especially in a lot of the New Testament. Um, When we studied John 11.35, and we studied Jesus wept, I don't know about you guys, but I picture Jesus weeping. You know, I don't picture Jim Caviezel weeping, but <laughs> I picture Jesus with tears when I um, studied the Gospels and we're in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he's crying and he's weeping. I picture Christ weeping in the Garden. I don't think the image in of itself is a violation of God's command. Now, Picturing images and using that for worship, I believe, comes dangerously close. If you're sitting in communion and your heart is moved, not by the truth of Christ's crucifixion, but a picture of Christ's crucifixion, and that is affixed to your mind, that can be dangerous. So in light of that, I believe it is up to each Christian's conscience whether they will see the movie or not. Um... If you are a visual person and you want to guard your heart against images that might be unbiblical, that is up to your conscience before the Lord. If you are someone that really has no problem with seeing this movie and you want to see it, that's between you and Christ. For anyone to 
Lord over your conscience and tell you to see it or not, I, I believe it's wrong. It's before you and the Lord. But I think you should be guarded as you, if you see the movie to make sure that your heart is not unduly influenced by images. The God-ordained means of saving the lost and sanctifying Christians is the preaching of the Word of God and the written Word of God. Some people call it the foolishness of preaching. Because even in New Testament times, there were more quote-unquote dramatic, effective, powerful ways of communication. But God ordained that the way He wants to save the lost, the way He wants to save and, and sanctify believers, is through the written Word of God proclaimed by a man of God to the church and the world. I, I suppose there are many reasons for this. I think it highlights the limitation of man. At the same time, it highlights the power, the authority, the infallibility, the sufficiency of the Word of God. Also, I think God knows the heart of man. If we are moved by images, if we're moved by experiences and emotions, then we will crave more experiences. We'll crave more images. But if we are encouraged, exhorted, by the written Word of God that is proclaimed, and we've experienced this. We crave the Word of God that much more. If you're encouraged by a sermon, you're not going to go and want to listen to a song or watch a movie or experience it somehow. If you're exhorted by the Word of God that is proclaimed, your heart desires more of God's Word, which is God's plan. And I think Christ Himself pointed to this in Acts 24 and the road to Emmaus. He came upon two disciples and he hid himself, his true identity. And he just explained the Old Testament to them. And then he disappeared. The disciples said to, the, said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us as he explained the scriptures to us? Why didn't Christ say, Look, it's me, Jesus. Rejoice. Because he wanted them to depend upon the word of God as the power of their Christian life not some kind of experience with the risen Christ. And their testimony was, when we understood the Word of God, our hearts were on fire. So let's crave the Word of God that much more. So, it is up to your consciences, brothers and sisters, whether you want to see the movie or not. I'd encourage you to, to guard your heart and to make sure you go in to filter everything with God's Word, like the Bereans in Acts 17.11. Also, not to get caught up with the hype of Hollywood and so many churches where this movie is going to bring revival to this nation, to this world. Look, there were people who saw the real thing and they weren't converted, right? There are masses of people who saw it live and had no effect upon their souls. So to see a reenactment that that's going to bring upon revival is, I think, foolishness. Um, if anything, I think it's going to deceive more people than save people. We're studying in the book of James. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers, by just knowing the word, but do what it says. I fear that people upon people will see this movie, they'll experience something, they'll get emotional, they'll cry, and they'll say, I agree with this, and they'll leave the theater thinking that they're Christians because of their experience. And it will cause many to, to be deceived, to think that they are righteous. 
when the reality is they're not. It is just an experience. So, I think it's a great platform for the gospel. Um, it's better that right now the society is talking about Jesus Christ instead of Barbershop 2. That's my little thing, right? <laughs> I can't be a bad thing, right? So, instead of talking to your neighbors about, I don't know, what else? 50 first dates, right? Instead of that, talking about Christ and the meaning of the cross. Now, there's a lot of talk about the gratuitous violence in the movie, the crucifixion, and what, what, did that, what that all entails. You know, I think, in a sense, it's kind of good. Because that was the reality of crucifixion. It, in, in Christianity in America, we have such a sanitized version of the cross that when we come upon verses like Luke 9.23, take up your cross daily and deny yourself, American Christianity is, yeah, I take up my cross, I'm having problems at work. You know, or, you know, I'm struggling, my personal struggles, or my self-esteem is low, or whatever. And, yeah, i got to carry my cross. Not understanding, when Christ said, carry the cross, he meant, you'll be hated by this world, rejected by this world. You'll go through torture and suffering, and you're going to die with open shame. And that's what Christ is calling us to. So it reminds us, the gravity and the intensity of the calling to follow Christ as his disciples. Secondly, um, crucifixion was God's chosen mode of death for his son. God chose one way that his son was to be tortured and, and die, and that wasn't through beheading, it wasn't through stoning, it wasn't through falling off a cliff. He said crucifixion. Now, why such a hor- horrible way of death? I think it's because the crucifixion and the mode of death reveals to us the ugliness of our sins. That's how ugly it is. For Christians, we sin and it just disappears. We sin and God forgives us. It just goes away. Well, that's kind of neat. I like that. I just pray a prayer of confession and sins are gone. When we see Christ suffering and on the cross, we realize, you know what, my sin doesn't just go away. It has consequences. And there it is on Christ, on His body, His scars. They are the consequences of my personal sins. It, it, it reminds us of the ugliness, the wickedness, the evil love sin. And thirdly, reveals to us the wrath of God. So Paul says, right, if God treats his own son in this way because of transgression, what will God do to, to his enemies? That's, a, that's an incredible thought. Because of sin, if that's how God treats his own son whom he loves, how is he going to treat the enemies of God when their sins remain before the judgment, before his throne? The reality of God's judgment and condemnation, the wrath of God, should ought to compel us to evangelize all the more and pray for the lost. So, boy, enough about this movie. You know, my, my final thought is, there's not a single movie that has changed the world. Movies are a fleeting medium. Uh, Baron Von Klauswitz said this. I don't know where I picked this up. But he said, beware of the vividness of transient events. It was a military tactician. And movies come and go. I mean, what was the top grossing movie three months ago? Anybody remember? 
No, because movies are fleeting. Books, the written word, right? That's what is significant. So let us focus all the more, as we see the day drawing near, upon the word of God and proclaim it faithfully and clearly. Well, let's get to our study this morning. You know, my preaching professor in lab told me never to do this. I'm going to bring a cardinal law of preaching and give you guys a warning about the length of the sermon that is to come. That's not a smart thing to do, but I try to break it down, part one and part two and part three, but once we get into it, there's no place to to break it off in part two. So it's either all or none. So we can't have none, so we're going to go for it all. Okay, so bear with me. I am clearly certain that I'm going to put some of you to sleep tonight, today, about halfway through. And some of you guys aren't going to come back because I'm going to drive you away because of the nitty-gritty details we're going to get into this morning. But I think by the time we're done, um, at page 21, you'll realize that was definitely worth it. And uh, um, my appreciation of God's sovereignty has increased because of our study. Well, in John 12.12, we find ourselves thrust into an important event in the ministry of our Lord. We are entering the last week of Christ's life. If you have the handout with you, you will know that this is Sunday morning. It is a triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And we are four days removed from the crucifixion of Christ. And from this point on, we'll be studying the last week of Christ's life. Our Lord knows that He's coming for the last time to Jerusalem. He has come many times throughout His life. This definitely is His last time. And He's coming to die. He knows this. He told the disciples throughout His ministry that He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed in the third day of raised life. Our Lord is not a victim. The crucifixion didn't happen to him. He is not a victim of circumstance or the Sanhedrin. No, he is coming with a purpose, with an intention to suffer and to die. This is the final drama of our Lord's life. Previously, he had entered Jerusalem privately. In John 7, 1 through 6, remember Jesus' brother said, The Feast of Tabernacles is near. Jesus, why don't you go publicly and start a movement and be the leader of Israel? And Christ said, My time has not yet come. Therefore, he went to Jerusalem privately. <coughs> well, not this time. Not in John 12. He enters a city as a public figure. There is a flurry of attention towards Christ because of Him raising Lazarus from the grave after He had been dead for four days in the city of Bethany, two miles removed from Jerusalem. The throngs of people, the citizens of Jerusalem, many of them were eyewitnesses to this great miracle. Therefore, when 200,000 pilgrims came to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, That news spread like wildfire. It was CNN 24-7. And it was all about what Jesus did with Lazarus. If you don't believe us, take a two-mile walk to the east of Jerusalem and talk to Lazarus. And you'll 
See it for yourself. Hear it for yourself. This man who was dead for four days was raised to life by Christ Himself. And so everyone is eager to see Him. Excitement is in the air. And Christ plans His public entrance to force the hand of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin did not want to, commit, to crucify Christ, murder Christ during the Passover because they were afraid of His popularity. That if they were to kill Christ during this feast, the people might turn on them and they might lose their power. So they had intended to wait until a later time to murder Christ. But when the Sanhedrin saw the popularity, the growing emergence of Christ as a leader, their thoughts were, look, the world has gone after him. If we don't stop him now, if we don't kill him now, it'll be too late. We must kill him this week. And our Lord did this purposely. He was forcing his hand. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with me? He was forcing them to carry out their villainous, evil conspiracy to put him to death. And everyone, or almost everyone, was blind to the truth that all of this was foreordained by God. It had been prophesied in the Old Testament. It had been declared, meticulously uh, described. The exactness of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is, in a word, astounding. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. And yet it is true. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. And this is why it's going to be a long sermon. Right? We're going to go through a study of Daniel chapter 9 <coughs> to fully understand the significance of this historic event of Jesus Christ entering Jerusalem. We need to understand chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. Now, before we um, dive into Daniel 9, let me give you a quick background of this book. After King Solomon passed away, his sons divided the kingdom, the two kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom Israel and southern kingdom Judah. The northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. There will be no quiz or test, so don't worry about it. Just, just you know, soak it all in. The southern kingdom, Judah, was taken by Babylon. And there was three deportations, three captivities, exiles being taken away, starting in 605. 605. 597, and finally 586. In 586, Babylon came and decimated Jerusalem. They destroyed it. They leveled the city. And that's Lamentations. The theme of Lamentations is the funeral of a city. Isaiah prophesied, the enemy is coming, Judah, you must repent. Yes, it is 140 years away, but it is still coming. People weren't listening. Jeremiah said, the judgment of God is imminent. It's going to happen any day now. These prophets were saying, peace, peace, safety. God says, God did not send them. There is no peace. There is no safety. There is only judgment. But there is still time if you will repent. Judah didn't repent. Jeremiah, in Lamentations, he witnesses the fall of Jerusalem. 
Ezekiel is taken captive and he sees all that that's happened with Daniel as well as an exile in a foreign country. Now Daniel was taken captive. He was deported out of Jerusalem as a teenager in the first deportation in 605 B.C. Now we all know Daniel, right? I mean, we've you've been in the church for a while, you've, you know, uh, went through children's ministry and watched VeggieTales, I don't know, you've, you've heard about all those stories about Daniel's piety and character, his courage, his faith in God. And because his character was so impeccable, he was such a man of integrity and courage that he rose in prominence in this pagan country. And even though he was a foreigner, he rose the rank of prime minister of Babylon. Prime minister and a servant to King Nebuchadnezzar. After King Nebuchadnezzar died and Belshazzar took over, he was still the prime minister. And after Babylon lost to Medo-Persians and King Darius took over, Daniel was such, such a preeminent character, preeminent man, that he kept his position, he kept his office. So in Daniel chapter 9, he is still the prime minister under a new kingdom, under a new king. And this is what he says, Daniel 9 verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, <coughs> by descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books a number of years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So, Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah and he came upon Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. This was Jeremiah's prophecy that Babylon is going to come and take the people of God into exile, into Babylon for 70 years, declares the Lord. Jeremiah foresaw that God would punish and judge Israel by means of a pagan nation. But God also promised that after that was done, and during that time, he would punish the king of Babylon and Babylon itself for their wickedness. And Daniel saw this firsthand. He served under the king Nebuchadnezzar. He was part of the Babylonian kingdom. And he saw God's judgment upon his nation Israel and also Babylon. And then he read Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So here's Daniel, reading his Bible, doing his quiet time, and he says, 70 years. Wait a minute. I was taken in 605 B.C. as a teenager. I'm 80-something years old now. Wait a minute, that's 67 years ago. This is unbelievable. Just like God promised, God used Babylon to punish Judah. And just like God promised, God judged Babylon. And here I am under the Medo-Persian king, and the 70 years are almost up. And God promised after the 70 years, 
He will restore Israel. Daniel was taken aback. He saw firsthand the unfolding plan of God, the unfolding prophecy of God being fulfilled before his very eyes. How did Daniel respond? He didn't write a book, you know, a seven-part book on tribulation or the end times and made a bestseller and made a killing in, in the bookstore. He didn't do that. What is the appropriate response to understanding the Word of God, understanding prophecy? Daniel humbled himself and went to God in life-consuming prayer. When he discovered the fulfillment of God's prophecy, he went to God to pray. Look at verse 3. He did five things. And these five things point to the life, his just complete um, physical, emotional, intellectual commitment to go to God in humble prayer. He turned his face to the Lord God. <coughs> he resolutely applied his attention. He, he, he woke up. He set himself straight. He physically turned himself towards Jerusalem. He fixed his focus. And then he sought Him by prayer. He sought the Lord through petition. In surrender, Daniel pleads for mercy. He petitions, he intercesses, and he appeals to the mercy of God. And then he commits himself to not eat, to forsake food, fasting. And then he puts himself with sackcloth and ashes, a physical portrayal of, of repentance, of brokenness, sorrow, and mourning. His mind, body, soul was directed to God in prayer. Words like concentration, devotion, determination can be used to describe the manner of prayer that Daniel was involved in, in verse 3. And then he begins by giving preeminence to the glory of God. He begins by giving the prominence to God's glory. Similar to the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11.1. 1, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Christ is begin by, by ascribing to God His glory, His greatness, His holiness. Well, Daniel does the same thing. He says in verse 4, he prayed, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, you are God of history. You are sovereign. You are the King of all kings. You are the Lord of all lords. You are mighty. You are great. You are awesome. And God, it is to you I pray. And God, verse 4, you are a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His covenants. He contrasts how Israel has broken covenant after covenant. Israel has rebelled. Israel has sinned. But not the great and mighty king of Israel. He is a covenant-keeping God. David knew this from a... Daniel knew this from a vast number of passages that God keeps His covenant to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, to Moses, and now even to the people who are exiled in a foreign land, God will keep His promise. Daniel begins by ascribing the glory of God, and then Daniel confesses 
the guilt of Israel and him being part of Israel. He confesses their iniquity in contrast to God's glory. Daniel's prayer acknowledges Israel's blame. Starting with verse 5, Daniel mentions Israel's sin 19 times. First of all, he describes the enormity of Israel's sins. He heaps up terms. He candidly acknowledges the serious guilt before God. And Daniel, he doesn't say Israel, he says we. He acknowledges his partnership, his involvement, his culpability in the sins of Israel. He uses five verbs here. In verse 5, Israel has sinned. We missed the mark. He uses that word word often. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 15. Israel has missed the mark. Not only have we missed the mark, we also committed iniquity. We actively did wrong against God. Daniel strengthens his description of the enormity of the sin even more by saying we acted wickedly. Contrasted with the righteousness of Christ, righteousness of God, Daniel says we have acted wickedly. Not only have we sinned, committed iniquity, we acted wickedly, Daniel continues, we have rebelled against the Lord. (coughs) And then the fifth word, we have turned aside from God. The idea of turning aside is that we have apostatized. We have veered off course from God. This resembles a woman who turns aside to shameful impurity. Israel has been unfaithful to God's commandments. Daniel moves from the enormity of sin to verse 6, the embarrassment of sin. Embarrassment. Not only have they not listened to the prophets that God has sent, all the way from top down, our kings did not listen to the prophets. Our princes not listen. Our leaders, the people, all of us are guilty. And shame belongs to us. And what kind of shame? Verse 7. To us belong open shame. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those who are near, to those who are far away. Verse 8. Belongs to us open shame. Our kings, our princes, our fathers, Because we have sinned against you. Literally, shame of faces. Middle Eastern, ancient culture is all about honor and shame. It's like our culture is a a financial culture. We have honor through finances. If you're rich, you have honor. If you're poor, you don't. Right? You have a large credit rating, credit score, a large credit account, there's honor. Right? You have shame if you don't, if you're in debt. When the Middle Eastern culture, it wasn't about finances, it was about your reputation. Whether you had honor in your family, in your community, in your culture, or if you had shame. The greatest fear of men and women in this time was to be ashamed. That's why David prays, Lord, let me not be ashamed before my enemies. Because that is the greatest humiliation. That I will stand before my adversaries and I will have shame. Daniel says, to us belongs not shame, not humiliation, open shame because of our sins. 
Shame is the humiliation of a broken heart. <coughs> it is a sick feeling, a painful feeling, a wiped out feeling that produces weeping. It is being downcast, hopeless, being ridiculed, being mocked. Daniel knew their shame was open and there was nothing that they could do to cover up the shame. Only God can do it. Daniel moves to from the enormity of sin, the embarrassment of sin, to the result of sin. Verse 11. The result is that the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses have been poured out upon us. In the Mosaic covenant, God covenanted with the nation of Israel. Let's come together and make a contract. If the nation of Israel will obey my word, I will bless you. I will make you a light to the Gentile world. But if you disobey me, all the curses in this book will be given towards you. Daniel says, because we violated the commands of God, the punishment of God, the judgment of God has been poured out on us. It's the idea that there was a forecast of rain and now it's pouring heavily. A few days ago, they said it's going to rain for four days straight. It was incessant rain. Likewise, as Daniel was saying, God promised, God made an oath, if you disobey me, forecast is rain of judgment. And so because you disobeyed me, I'm a God of covenants. I'm a God of oaths. And I have poured out my judgment against you. And the great sorrow of Daniel was that even yet, God's people were not repentant. And so in verse 15, Daniel prays for deliverance. Daniel appeals to God, O Lord, remove your anger and your wrath away from your city, your holy hill, verse 16, because of our sins, because of the iniquities of our fathers. And then humbly, verse 17, Daniel appeals to God's grace and mercy. O Lord, God, listen to the prayer of your servant. Listen to his pleas for mercy. <clears throat> for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Verse 18, he says, We do not present our pleas because you, before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel says, We have no right to ask anything of you, God, but because of your own mercy, Lord, hear our cry, have compassion upon us, and show us your mercy. Restore us, O Lord. Well, Daniel was praying, Daniel was fixed in prayer. And in verse 20, we see the answer of God. God sends His messenger, angel Gabriel, to give a special prophecy to Daniel. And this is a prophecy that is incredible. Verse 20, While I was speaking, while I was praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. 
he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight, understanding, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, at the beginning, Daniel, when you turned your face, when you plead for mercy, when you humbled yourself and began to pray, God responded and sent forth the word. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word, understand the vision. And here is the prophecy. Seventy, and in your versions it might say weeks. Maybe put, think this way, or let me put in there. Seventy sevens. Seventy times sevens. A week is a seven. Right? Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. To finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore, verse 25, understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, <coughs> to the coming of an anointed one, the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven sevens, seven times seven, and sixty-two sevens, sixty-two times seven, and it will, it will be built again with squares and moat in a troubled time. Verse 26. And after the 62 sevens, 62 weeks, 62 times seven, the anointed one shall be cut off. The Messiah will be cut off. He will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one, one week, one seven. And for half of the seven he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel 9, 24-27. You understand this passage, you'll well on your way to understanding the book of Revelation. In the mind of many Bible students, it is the most marvelous and exact prophecy in all of the scriptures. Some have said that this is the greatest defense of the divine authorship of the Bible. Sir Isaac Newton said, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone, made 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Seventy-seventh. While Daniel was praying, Gabriel comes <coughs> and he says, Seventy-sevens are decreed for Israel. Daniel thought, three more years, then we're home. God's coming back, restoring it, uh, Jerusalem, it will be established again. And Gabriel says, no, not cry. More than three years. You have 490 years before Israel is restored to its rightful place. It was promised by God through prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But before that can be accomplished, 490 years must pass. Verse 24, God's timetable is that after that time, transgression will be finished. Sin will be ended. Iniquity will be atoned for. There will be everlasting righteousness. And both vision and prophet will be anointed as most holy in the, in the most holy place. Going on to verse 25, and this is where I'm going to lose some of you. So if I lose you, our audio ministry will <laughs> keep you up to date by sending you a CD. In verse 25, Gabriel says that the Messiah, the anointed one, the prince will come 
in 483 years. Now, where do we get 483 years? It's 7 times 69, right? There is 1 7 and 1 62. You add that, you get 69. You multiply that by 7, you get 483. Gabriel says, in the 483rd year, the Messiah will come. He'll be cut off. And then Jerusalem will be destroyed. And then there'll be one seven-year period remaining, right? There's 490. 483 is finished. There'll be one seven-year remaining. And that goes to Revelation, the tribulation. Seven-year tribulation that is yet to come. The angel comes and says, not just yet. There's 483 years yet to come. But at the end of that time, the Messiah will come. The anointed one, the prince. Now the question is, okay, now stay with me. This is the complex part. The question is, okay, Daniel's like, okay, great. I thought there was three left, but there's 483. Okay, I can accept that. But when does this timetable, when does the clock start? 483 years. When does it begin? Verse 25, Gabriel says, From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, that's when the clock starts. That's when you can start the stopwatch, and 483 years later, the Messiah will arrive. When does this happen? This word, this decree, can refer to four decrees concerning rebuilding Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 1, we find the first decree to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem given by Cyrus. Given by Cyrus, king of Medo-Persia. This occurred in October 29th, 539 B.C. Now this decree concerned the return of the captives and rebuilding just the temple, not the city. So this one doesn't qualify. There is a second decree in Ezra chapter 5, verses 3 through 17. Now, this decree does not serve us either because it also refers to the temple and not to the city. Not only that, this is not really a second decree. It is a mere affirmation of the first decree because the underlings had questions about, you're going to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem? Is this a real decree? And Darius says yes. Cyrus says yes. It is a real decree. But that one doesn't work. The third decree was given to Ezra by Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Depending on your pronunciation. In 457 B.C. Ezra chapter 7, 11 through 26 is the third decree given by Artaxerxes. Now again... This decree is reference to restoring the temple, but not the city. So this decree doesn't work. <clears throat> but thankfully there is a fourth decree. Decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 8, you can do quiet time on this this week. In 444 BC, the king Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the temple, and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This decree fits like a glove. 
Because there's a direct reference to building the city back up, restoring the gates and the walls. There is a specific mention of building of the walls in chapter 2, verse 8. And furthermore, no later decrees were given by the Persian kings pertaining to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. This is the only decree that adequately fits the the, the description given in Daniel 9.25. So it must be this fourth decree. If you go to Nehemiah 2.1, don't turn there, it says that King Artaxerxes gave this decree in the first day of of the month of Nisan at 444 B.C. Okay? First day of the year 444 B.C., around March, April of 444 B.C. Now you're saying, great, that's simple. I'm not lost yet. That wasn't too hard. Are we almost done? Well, let's just, why don't we just add 483 to 444 and where do we end up? But there's one more problem. Which calendar are we going to use? Are we going to use the solar calendar or the prophetic calendar? Right? The solar calendar, calendar you and I use, and today is what, leap, it's called leap day, right? Leap year, 29th of February. Because in a solar calendar, there is actually 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45.975 seconds in one year. Solar calendar. And so every 4 years, those hours and minutes and seconds add up, so you've got to add a day. Are we going to use that calendar? Or are we going to use the prophetic ear that is used in the Bible? Now, we need to use the prophetic calendar and this, these are the reasons why. In this part of the world, in Egypt, India, Assyria, Babylon, and Israel, they used the 30 days a month calendar. 30 days a month. <coughs> and they would add 5 days every few years. Right? This is the calendar used in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, Moses says that the flood began began on the 17th day of the second month. The flood ended on the 17th day of the seventh month. So how many months did the flood last? Okay. Were you guys listening? Right? 17th of the second month, flood began. 17th of the seventh month, flood ended. How many months passed? Five. Good. You guys are listening. Five months. How many days? In Genesis 7.24, it says, The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So Moses says, five months, 150 days, 30 months a day, 30 days a month calendar. Not only that, Daniel's 70th week is a good illustration of this. Daniel says, there is one seven-year period left. This tribulation period. He doesn't call it that, but that's what it is. And the halfway point, it's called mid-tribulation, when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel and commits an abominable act in the temple of God, is three and one-half years. In Revelation 12, 6, Apostle John 
describes the three and a half years by giving it a number of days. And he says, 1260 days. <coughs> if you do the math, that's 42 months. That's 30 days month calendar. So, although we use a solar calendar, this region, these people, and the Bible use the prophetic calendar, which is 30 days per month. Based upon that, you multiply 483 years, right? 7 times 69, and you multiply that by 360 days, because there's 30 days in a month, it gives you a total of 173,880 days. Now just trust me, you can go home and take out your calculators and add it all up. Uh, I'm not good at math, so I had to do this several times to make sure it adds up, but it does. If you add 173,880 days from March 1st of 444 B.C. when King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2.1 gave the decree to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, it goes to March 30th, A.D. 33. The month of Nisan, day 10, in A.D. 33. If you do your church history or, or Bible history, you know that according to Passover occurred on Friday afternoon of this week. The exact day when Christ entered Jerusalem, Sunday, that's the 10th of Nisan. The exact day when Gabriel told Daniel the 483 years of God's dealing with Israel will be done and the Messiah will come and he will be cut off and he will have nothing. The exactness of God's prophecy to the very day that Christ entered, that was a day that was prophesied by God five centuries before. This is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And Christ knew this. In John 2, when and Christ's mom says, can you do something about this wedding? Christ said, why do you involve me, woman? My time has not come. In John 7, his brothers said, why don't you go to Jerusalem, Feast of Tabernacles? There's a lot of pilgrims there now. Show yourself as the Messiah. For you, any time is right. <coughs> My time has not come. John 8.20 John 7.30, they tried to seize him, the Pharisees, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. John 8.20, he spoke these things in the temple area, rebuking the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, but no one laid their hands on him because his time had not yet come. We'll study verse 31 next week. When Christ enters Jerusalem, John 12.31 says, now is the time for judgment of the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. This is the hour for which I've come. And this is what is exactly happening in John 12. 483 years later, the exact day, our Lord enters Jerusalem as promised. Daniel saw this forward 483 years 
we are looking back 2,000 years. Consider this to close our time. When Daniel saw the prophecy of God being fulfilled before his eyes, he saw the nation of Israel, people of Israel, being judged by God because of their sins. Daniel responded by praying to God passionately. As we look at the Bible, as we read the Scriptures, and we see God's promise fulfilled in exacting detail in Christ, our Lord enters Jerusalem on the exact day as prophesied, and who is being judged because of our sin? For Daniel was the people of Israel, but for us, our Lord Jesus Christ, He is being judged. He is being condemned. He is crucified for our sins. The sins, punishment that should be upon us was upon Christ. What is our appropriate response to fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9? I believe just like Daniel, it is to set our lives in order for the purpose of prayer to face our God. Face our God in humility, pleading for mercy, in fasting, sackcloth and ashes, beginning by declaring the preeminence of God's glory and at the same time seeing the broken body of Christ on the cross, acknowledging, openly confessing the enormity of our sins that put Christ there the embarrassment of our sins, the open shame that belongs to us, and the result of our sin seen in Christ. Our response ought to be just like Daniel. But how much more than Daniel <coughs> ought we pray and praise Christ? How much more ought we glorify His name? People, our God is sovereign. Our God, He is the great and awesome, mighty, sovereign ruler of history. May we continue to peer into the Word of God and praise His name because of His sovereignty, because of His power. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we are amazed at the precision, at the exactness, at the detail of your prophecy and the power that you have to carry it forth. And Lord, we are broken and humbled because there are prophecies still yet to be fulfilled. You promise that you will return, that you will judge all the living and the dead the righteous will be invited into your kingdom. But those who do not wear the clothes of Christ, those who still hold to their own righteousness and their pride, you will cast them away in an eternal lake of fire. Lord, that prophecy, like the prophecies in the past, will come to pass, will come, to come true, and we will witness it with our own eyes. Lord, May our hearts testify to its truthfulness and may it be, may it be revealed of our, of our faith by how we pray. 
<coughs> by our passionate prayer, by our depth of prayer, by our, our, our heartfelt prayer before you, our confession of sin, and our fervent, our desperate proclamation of your truth to this world, to a dying world. Lord, we just marvel at your glory, at your sovereignty, and we praise you in response to that. In Jesus' name.